rejoice so greatly that we know you, the eternal and triune God. And we rejoice also, Lord, that we have fellowship with one another in the joy that we have in your character and in your love for us and in your perfections. Indeed, we long for the day, Lord, where we will truly worship and see the thrice holy God. We will praise your name forever. We are longing for that day, Lord. And until that day, we are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. We do not belong here in this place where your glory and holiness is shrouded from us. And we long to see you clearly. So indeed, Lord, us weary pilgrims, we rejoice at the opportunity to look at your perfect word, which is holy, which revives our soul. So please help us now as we look, as we look at your word. Help us see the, the perfection of your precepts, how your commands truly are divine and infallible. Please teach us, Lord, how we can live lives that are more pleasing to you. You would instruct us how we can adorn the doctrine of God in our lives. Please help us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. And as you take a seat and take out your notebook and such, please turn to Titus chapter 2. Um, I know that you guys were all looking up. You saw I was preaching. You went and uh, reviewed all of the previous sermons. And so you're right on, uh, on line with me. Just kidding. Um, to jog your memory, you probably completely forgot. Uh, my name's Spencer. I preach here every now and then. And uh, we've been going through Titus chapter 2. And throughout chapter 2, Paul is giving instructions to various groups in the church um, there in Crete that Titus is uh, going to be leading churches that he's going to be planting. And uh, we reach the final group of people uh, this morning in verses 9 and 10, the slaves. And now, if you're looking in your ESV, uh, you might be confused. I don't see any slaves. All I see are bondservants, whatever those are. Um, bondservants, uh, I don't know, it's, it's mostly a made-up word. The word is slave. There's no debate about it. Um, every Greek expert tells you the word doulos, it's the word for slave. So why do the translators use the word bondservant? Well, it's because they know that the word slave has a terrible connotation for us Americans, right? When you hear the word slave, you think of all the atrocities in the American South. And um, as we'll see this morning, slavery in the ancient world, it was not necessarily better, but it was different. And so the translators, in an attempt to avoid all the negative connotations that the word slave has, they instead pick an obscure word that also is not going to be as perhaps offensive, and that's the word bondservant. But I'm probably never going to say bondservant again this morning because the word slave is slave. Let's read it then. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Uh, we have two challenges with our text this morning. Um, the first one we'll address second. The first challenge is how do we apply uh, this admonition to slaves when none of us are slaves and we don't know any slaves? That's the, the first challenge. We'll address that with point three at the end of the sermon. The second challenge is how do we make sense of what the way that Paul here talks to slaves and indeed how the Bible speaks of slavery in general with our feelings of disgust, rightful feelings of disgust and revulsion at the form of slavery that we know of, slavery in the American antebellum South. How do we reconcile those things? Just think about it for a second. Imagine that you uh, were a church leader writing an official letter that had authority to a church in the antebellum South. Writing to that church would, the only thing you say about slavery 
be slaves, make sure you're faithful to your masters. No, you wouldn't say that. If you were, had the opportunity to write to a church in the antebellum south, you would say, masters, you need to repent of what you're doing. Stop treating your slaves as less than you. Stop believing that satanic uh, dogma of racism. They are not a lesser race. They are not below you. And you need to start treating them as brothers, especially those who are Christians. You need to repent of your harshness. You need to absolutely consider when and how you are going to set your slaves free. And in the words of the slaves probably would have been, be patient, brothers. The Lord sees your suffering. He will vindicate you. And in the meantime, love your enemies and submit to your masters. That's what you would say to a church that had slavery and slave owners, right? It's not what Paul says, though. Paul says nothing to the slave owners, that they need to set their slaves free, that they are sinners. And indeed, that's a problem for us. It's a problem for us living in modern-day America. And so the first part of today's sermon, in point one and two, what we're going to do is actually not exposit these two particular verses. Rather, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look to see what the Bible says about slavery in general. Um, And in that way, we'll exposit kind of all of the Bible's words about slavery. And why is this important? You know, it's not just a a trivial thing. Oh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, no one's tempted to practice slavery. No one struggles with that. But I guess it would be fun to find out if it was wrong in the past. The issue is a lot more relevant than that. Um, You could think of it this way. The issue of slavery is the chink in the armor of biblical morality. That's how the world sees it. That's even how some professing Christians see it. Many non-believers say, come on, don't tell me what the Bible says about sexuality and gender roles and really anything else. The Bible's in a moral book. The Bible condones slavery. The Bible tells people that slavery's okay. So don't come to me and, and tell me that the Bible gives me some other commands. The Bible's obviously in a moral book because it condones and approves of slavery. That's what non-believers say. It's a chink in the armor. If they can prove that on this one issue, the Bible is not divine and infallible, but instead backwards and obviously ancient in its thinking, well, then they can, from that, call into question all other parts of the Bible's authority. So non-believers, atheists say that, but even professing Christians concede that the Bible has a substandard morality when it comes to slavery. There's a number of professing Christians who will say, yes, look at the Bible. You can see that what the Bible says about slavery is lower than our own perfect modern standard of morality. And that's not the Bible's fault. Listen, the Bible was a human book, and so it had to conform to the standards of its day. And fortunately, the heart of the Bible, uh, which is to love your, in, uh, love your enemies, love one another, Fortunately, that won out, and it showed us a transcendent morality, that slavery is wrong. And basically, on that point, that that we can see that we've moved past the, the Bible's human ancient teachings about slavery, well, then we could apply that to other fields, too. This is what professing Christians say. Hey, listen, if, if the Bible wasn't perfect when it came to slavery, is it too far to think that the Bible wasn't perfect when it came to homosexuality? When it came to women pastors, real biblical scholars, professing Christians, will say it's the same issue. Just as slavery um, isn't perfectly presented in the Bible, so homosexuality, women pastors, stuff like that, we can move past what the Bible clearly says about the issue, and we can take the command to love one another and have that trump any specific teaching of the Bible. This is a very important issue. We need to defend, we need to know how to defend, that the Bible's morality, even on the issue of slavery, is still infallible and divine, even though it is different than what we would expect as modern people. Um, Kind of as, as a summary conclusion, before we then get into all the details, I'll say this. 
While the abolition of slavery in the Western world is, of course, a wonderful and positive Christian development, nevertheless, the Old and New Testament condone and regulate a just form of slavery. That's the key word. It doesn't approve and condone and regulate every type of slavery, but only a just and fair form of slavery, which I will show you later how it is just and fair. And this just, fair form of slavery, again, this is also, um, you know, foreshadowing, that just form of slavery was non-existent in the American South, okay? I didn't say at the outset, all slavery in the American South in the antebellum period was sinful. It was not just and it was not fair, and we'll see the specific reasons for that later. All that being said then, let's start, point one, by looking at slavery in the ancient world. Again, this is kind of our difficulty in coming to a passage like this. We read the word slavery, and our mind, rightfully, goes to the American South and the atrocities there. But it is anachronism, it's a mistake, it would be an assumption to assume that when the Bible talks about slavery, that slavery was the same as the slavery that we think of in American history. It was not. It was different. And so for us to understand what Paul says here about slavery, what the Bible says about slavery, period, we need a clearer picture of what slavery was actually like in the ancient world, okay? So this is an exercise in historical background. And specifically, what I'd like to do is give six facts about ancient slavery. And before I get into those, again, I want to note, ancient slavery, while it was different than American slavery, I'm not saying that it was better, okay? That would be an offense to ancient slaves and American slaves to try and say, oh, you had it worse than them, you had it better. Both of them are very unpleasant, undesirable, dehumanizing experiences, okay? In some ways, American slavery was better than ancient slavery, and in some ways, ancient slavery was better. They were both, in general, awful for the people involved. So just because they're different, it doesn't mean that ancient slavery, you know, it was a great deal, everyone wanted to do it, you'd be happy to be one. That's not the case. One other note I'd like to make, I'm about to give six facts about ancient slavery. As I'm saying these, they might seem incoherent in your mind, like, isn't that contradictory? Yes, it was a sinful, made-up human system, so it's not like it was a perfectly coherent system. It is obviously uh, inconsistent and contradictory. All right, six facts about ancient slavery. Number one, ancient slavery was an unquestioned institution. There was nobody who would have read Paul's words here and think, ah, Paul's pro-slavery. He is not an abolitionist. That would have not been anyone's thought. In fact, the first person in history who we have a record of questioning whether slavery is just period, as an institution, if it should be abolished altogether. The first person to even raise that question in writing is the 4th century great theologian Gregory of Nyssa. Before that, everyone accepted uh, slavery as a fact, an unpleasant fact, but a fact of life, like war or poverty. It's something that happens. So there was no, uh, again, a war between the abolitionists and the pro-slavery people in the ancient world. Everyone accepted it as a part of life. Indeed, in the ancient Roman Empire, probably about a quarter of the population uh, were slaves. It was all over the place. You could not live your life without running into people who were slaves. And indeed, this is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around because we live in a society where slavery has been eradicated. It only exists now on the very fringes of society and the black market, the criminal underworld. It's hard for us maybe to to imagine a world with slavery. So then it's even harder for us to imagine a world where everyone only knew society, civilization is having slavery. But we need to believe it. Okay, these ancient people, they had a different view of slavery than us. We have the privilege of knowing a society where it has been eradicated They could not even comprehend something like that. Second fact about ancient slavery is that ancient slavery could be entered into in a number of ways, okay? Uh, The worst way, of course, is that people could be kidnapped into it. They're living their lives, and one day a terrible person comes around and takes them into slavery. Of course, a person could be born into slavery. If your parents were slaves, you likely became a slave upon birth. 
you could also become a slave by contract. That is, it was uh, somewhat regular that somebody would be lacking money, shelter, work, and they would actually go to someone and say, can I become your slave? I will sell myself into slavery to you so that you will provide for my needs, I can continue to live, and then even, hopefully, eventually, I can become free again once I um, enter into better times. You could also enter into slavery through crime. Uh, If you do something illegal, you could be sent to prison, and your imprisonment could basically be, you're now a slave. Similarly, you could become a slave through war. If your army loses, uh, the opposing side basically had the option, we could execute them, or we can keep them as slaves. And so plenty of people became slaves that way. And then, of course, once you were a slave, you could also be bought and sold as a slave. So know that you could come into ancient slavery in a number of ways. You know, the the best way being that you decided to become a slave, you sold yourself into it, and the worst being uh, kidnapped into it. A third fact about ancient slavery is that ancient slaves were regarded as living tools. That's Aristotle's phrase, living tools. He believed that they were like halfway between humans and animals. They existed to serve free people. They indeed had less humanity than a normal free person. And as such, in the ancient world, for the most part, um, slaves were viewed as lacking any human dignity or moral agency. What would be morally repugnant to do to a free person would be completely inconsequential to do to a slave. They had no moral value. There were, there were no rights, human rights, to speak of that could be violated. And just know that when, when I say that, I'm going to spare you the examples of what would be done to ancient slaves without anyone batting an eye, but just know it was the worst. Uh, another example of how irrelevant uh, slaves were morally and uh, inconsequential Uh, For a man in the ancient Roman world to have relations with a slave, that was completely inconsequential. No one would have cared at all. It was a complete, normal part of life. On the other hand, for a man to have relations with a free woman who was not his wife, that would have been a total scandal. He would have been disgraced. So you can see then, one person, they have moral agency. You can have a relationship with them. You can have consequential uh, actions with them. And another, they're basically an inanimate object. It doesn't matter what you do with them. They were viewed as living tools. They were viewed as less than human. Fourth fact about ancient slavery is that ancient slavery was not racial. Generally, a slave could not be identified by their appearance, whether their ethnicity or even their clothing. You couldn't just look at someone and tell that they were a slave. Ancient slavery was about class. It was not about race. And of course, this is one of the particular horrors of American slavery, is that it was justified by denying the humanity of a whole continent's worth of people. That, though, was not the case in ancient Rome. You could be born anywhere, be of any ethnicity, and you could be a slave or a free person. Fifth fact about ancient slavery is that ancient slaves had opportunities for personal advancement. Again, that's another awful part of American slavery, is that slaves were denied the opportunity to learn. Uh, But in ancient times, an educated slave was a very desirable thing. They could, being a tool who was educated, they could accomplish a lot more for you rather than a slave who couldn't do anything but work the fields. So they wanted to educate them. They wanted to give them additional skills and responsibilities. And so in the ancient world, slaves were tutors of free people's children, They were political leaders, they were accountants, sea captains, soldiers. Indeed, Rome actually uh, relied on the administrative capabilities of slaves to administrate the whole Roman Empire. In faraway lands that Rome uh, conquered, the governors of those lands were slaves who were sent out there to rule the land. And furthermore, in having such important roles, slaves could acquire property, including their own slaves, Uh, They could acquire personal wealth, and they would frequently have the opportunity to then purchase their own freedom. And indeed, for the majority of slaves in the ancient world, slavery was not permanent. Uh, Most could expect being set free by the age of 30. Finally, sixth fact about uh, ancient slavery 
is that ancient slaves were not the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid. Free and impoverished people who had to work every day with no guarantee of income, food, or shelter were the lowest. And so because of that, many people sold themselves or their children into slavery to avoid that worse condition of basically having no guarantee that they'd be able to live another day, having no work, no food, no shelter. All right, so hopefully with that, you got a better idea of what slavery was like in the ancient world. Now we can come and see what does the Bible then say about slavery, and that's point number two, slavery in the Bible. Again, to reiterate my basic thesis, the Old Testament and New Testament condone and regulate a just form of slavery that was incompatible with American slavery. Um, And note that as I give an overview of what the Old Testament and the New Testament says about slavery, I'm not going to give every biblical reference or address, okay? That would be very cumbersome because I'm going to be referencing a lot of texts. If you'd like to know specifically where I get a statement, feel free to send me an email or come talk to me afterwards. We're going to look at three um, types, three categories of commands and rules concerning slaves in the Bible. Uh, And the New Testament commands uh, concerning slaves, we'll address those last. But first, we'll look at the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's two different categories of commands, rules, and principles when it comes to slavery. There were the principles, rules, and commands that applied to Israelites having Gentile slaves. And then there was another category of commands for Israelites who had fellow Israelites as their slaves. They had very different sets of rules. As you'll see, the rules for Gentile slaves were a little bit hard. They're they're a little bit hard for us to swallow, honestly. And on the other hand, the rules for the Hebrew slaves, you'll see they're very just, they're very fair. A few things, though, that are true of slaves in every category, whether they're an Old Testament Gentile slave, whether they're a New Testament slave, whatever, the Bible says these three things about every single uh, person enslaved. First of all, kidnapping is always wrong. In the Old Testament, and the New Testament, everywhere, kidnapping is a sin, kidnapping is wrong. It is never okay to have a slave who was kidnapped, or even to have a slave that there's a significant possibility they were kidnapped. It was a terrible thing to kidnap somebody. It was the worst form of stealing. Indeed, the only type of theft in the Old Testament that required the death penalty was kidnapping, okay? Kidnapping was always wrong. Second, slaves in the Bible are always viewed as spiritual persons who are to be reconciled to God. They are always included in either the Israelite uh, religious life or in the church, in the Christian religion. They are always seen as having souls. And being people who have souls, they also had rights as persons, even though uh, some of the rights maybe were less than we would think we'd prefer, they all did have an amount of civil rights, maybe you could call it, that were more than would be experienced by people in other nations. All right, then. What does the Bible say about Old Testament Israelites who had Gentiles as their slaves? Well, they were property. Uh, These slaves could be bought, sold, inherited, uh, whatever. Second, their civil rights were less than a free person. Um, This is exemplified that in the Old Testament, if you kill a free person, the penalty for yourself is that you die. It's uh, capital punishment. The highest value is put on the free person's life, such that if you take away their life, you lose your life. However, if you kill a Gentile slave in the Old Testament, you wouldn't lose your life. You'd instead just have to pay a lot of money. And in that way, you can see the slave is valued less than the free person, at least in terms of the civil government. And indeed, this is the most difficult part of the Bible's teaching on slavery. You'll see everything else is very just and very fair. There's really no problems elsewhere. This is the hard thing. And I think you can resolve it in in your mind in this way. You need to think of that type of Gentile slavery as a part and consequence of war. Okay? It's a part of war. These slaves, that's how they would have been acquired. It is Israel fighting somebody, and once they have won the victory, they could either execute the soldiers who remain, 
or they could bring them in as slaves. And Israel was justified to have Gentile slaves in such a way, in the same way that they were justified to wage war on other nations, indeed to slaughter the Canaanites. They were justified in killing the Canaanites and in enslaving various Gentile nations because they were acting as God's agent of judgment on the other nations. And just as with the killing of the Canaanites, we trust God's justice in the matter while recognizing that such instances do not provide an example or justification for us. Because Israel killed the Canaanites, that does not mean that I can be violent with someone. That doesn't mean I can kill somebody. It's a misappropriation if you thought that. And so indeed, just as early American Puritans were incorrectly applying the Bible when they treated their African brothers as property, so they were also incorrectly applying the Bible when they saw the book of Joshua and the conquest there as justification for them massacring Native American villages in things like the Pequot War. They had a lot of problems in their Old Testament interpretation, which resulted in serious sin. Again, the basic principle is this in reading the Old Testament. What was morally justified for Israel to do as a nation is not necessarily justified for you as an individual. Morality has to, has to do with who you are. Jesus, he is the judge of the earth. God is the judge of the earth. He can do a lot of things that I'm not allowed to do. That's not my role. And indeed, Israel, the nation, they had a different role than we do as Christian individuals. And so it was always wrong when Christians in this century took these rules about Gentile slaves and applied it to the people that they enslaved. All right, then. Let's now look at the, uh, indeed, fair and just rules that the Old Testament had for Israelites who had other Israelites as their slaves. First of all, these slaves only entered slavery by contract. They only became slaves because they were going to die otherwise, and they really needed some work and some food and some shelter. And even on top of that, you should note that there were a lot of laws in the Old Testament to even protect the poor people from getting to that point. So the only way you'd become a slave is because you were so poor that you couldn't do anything else. And the Old Testament on top of that, though, had all kinds of rules about giving food to the poor so they would not even have to go into slavery. And if that happened, though, if they could not get food, they could not get work, they had to enter slavery to leave, to live, well then, during their time as slaves, their freedom could be purchased at any time by their family members. So, you know, one day you don't have any money, you're going to die, you come to some good man you know, you say, can I please be your slave? He says, yes, you can. Six months later, a relative dies, you get a windfall of cash. No problem. You just uh, pay off the debt you owe him, and you're free once again. And even if you don't do that, say you labor and labor, and you never get that windfall of cash, you're never accumulating funds, well, after six years, you're done, you're free. That's the maximum amount of time that anybody could serve as a slave. At the seventh year, the master had to let their slave go free. And indeed, even on top of that, the masters in the Old Testament, they are specifically told, even if one of these fellow Hebrews of yours is a slave, you are not to treat them as a slave. It says specifically, you should treat them as a hired worker. They are not less than you in dignity. Even though they might in fact, in practice, be your slave, don't treat them that way. Treat them as just one of your workers. And in line with that, uh, you could not buy and sell Hebrew slaves and it ended up happening that this system could sometimes be so good for the slaves that there was a whole provision in the Old Testament for a slave that loved their master and didn't want to be set free after the sixth year. They wanted to stay in the house and keep serving their beloved master. And so there was even a provision to do that. So hopefully, I, I think you can see from that. Slavery for Israelites who had fellow Israelites, it was just and fair. It was entirely volitional, and there was all kinds of mercy and grace within it. And that same justice and grace and mercy is reflected in what the New Testament says about slaves. First thing you should note is that the Bible makes it very, very clear that slaves are of the exact same spiritual status as a free person. Just as in the New Testament, there is no spiritual distinction between a Jew and a Greek or a man and a woman, so there is absolutely no spiritual distinction between a slave and a free person. 
You can look at Galatians 3.28 for that one. And because of that, there would be absolutely no justification for a slave owner to not treat a Christian slave as his own brother. Again, that's something that obviously the American slave owners fail to do very frequently. Furthermore, we see uh, about slavery in the New Testament, we have the wonderful book of Philemon, where Paul basically tells a slave owner, Philemon, that he should release his slave Onesimus from his slavery because he has now become a Christian and he's going to be a very effective and helpful brother serving the Lord freely. Um, Furthermore, all throughout the New Testament, we have masters being told that they must treat their slaves fairly because one day they are going to have to answer to their master. They don't have some special status. They answer to the Lord just as the slaves do, and if they don't treat them kindly and fairly as brothers, they will be punished by their master, the Lord. And then finally, um, the wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians 7.22 says that no matter what you are here in this life, a slave or a free person, if you are in Christ, you are both at the same time free in him and you're a slave in him. You are free from sin, you are free from this world, and your freedom, though, is characterized by now slavery and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so no matter the the circumstances here in life, One person could not look down on another because spiritually we're all the same. Spiritually, both freedom and slavery is something we rejoice in and we value. Indeed, one of the highest titles in the Bible for anybody is a slave of God. Moses had that title. Paul, at the beginning of the book of Titus, he calls himself a slave of God. And that's something that we indeed all rejoice in. We rejoice to be slaves of Jesus Christ, the perfect master And we also rejoice in the liberty and freedom that he has given us from sin. Indeed, this is one of the great practical applications for you this morning. All of you are free physically. None of you are enslaved. That's great news. But are you enslaved spiritually? Can you resist your sin? The Bible says that anyone who makes a practice of sinning is a slave of sin. It is much, much better to be enslaved physically and be free in Christ than to be free and be enslaved to your flesh, enslaved to Satan. And indeed, that is the liberty that Christ offers to everyone this morning. If you would repent and believe in him, he will give you true freedom. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And right now, if you don't know the Lord, you might think that it would be awful to be a slave to Christ. Oh, that would be so boring, and you'd have to give up all the good things in life. That is the opposite of how it is. Being a slave to Jesus Christ, the definition of joy and goodness and perfection, that is freedom. That is the height of joy. So indeed, come to him. Learn the wonderful freedom that it means to be his servant and to follow him taking all that, taking everything we've learned about slavery in the ancient world, taking everything we've learned about slavery in the Bible, let's make it concrete now, okay? Let's let's apply this, let's synthesize it, and let's first of all ask the question then, with all of this background, what would it have meant, if at all this was possible, what would it have meant to be a righteous Christian slave owner? What would that have looked like? Because every example we know of from the antebellum south, those were bad examples. What would it have mean for someone to be a righteous Christian slave owner? It would have meant this. It would have meant, first of all, that the slave was acquired in a just way. That is, they could not have been kidnapped. If you had a kidnapped slave, whether he was bought, sold, his ancestors were kidnapped, whatever, it is wrong to have that person in slavery. You must set that person free immediately. That means the only way that you could justly have a slave is either by contract, the person asked to become your slave, or by war. It was either execute him or keep him as a slave. And again, this disqualifies all American slavery from being just. Why? Because so many of the African slaves were kidnapped that any individual could not know for certain whether this person was just kidnapped from his home or whether he, in a just way, entered slavery. How could you take someone in thinking, eh, maybe you entered in through a just way? 
Maybe it was a terrible crime. I don't know. I'll just do what's economically beneficial. That disqualifies all American slavery from being just. And indeed, there are actually some Christians, uh, like the famous uh, South American abolitionist, Bartolome de la Casas, who actually initially promoted Africans being enslaved over natives because he thought that all Africans had been, become slaves justly, that they were criminals or that they had willingly entered into it. Later, when he found out that that was not at all the case, that the vast majority of them were kidnapped and stolen, uh, he was cut to the heart, he was broken, and the rest of his life he was fighting for the rights of the African slaves as well. Um, also, what it, have meant, what it would have meant to be a righteous Christian slave owner is that your slave would have been treated as an equal in terms of dignity. They might have a different role in life, but they were a human, a person made in the image of God just like you. They had no lesser dignity merely because they physically were a slave. Third, the slave would be nurtured to maturity and freedom. Because you saw them as a fellow human being, you wouldn't treat them as a living tool. You would treat them as a soul to be shepherded and cared for. You would care about their life, what they would do, what they would become. They would most of all be taught and shepherded in sound doctrine. You would take them to church. You would tell them that they need to believe in the gospel. And then furthermore, they would be given opportunities to learn and grow professionally. And then with that, you would make the pathway to emancipation clear. You would make it, and it would be a fair and efficient pathway. And again, by these standards, there were no righteous Christian slave owners in America. All of them demonstrated racism, viewing them as less than the white people. Um, they were not taught to read. They were uh, shielded from having opportunities to emancipation. And many of them, at least, were, had the possibility of having been acquired by kidnapping. So their slavery was illegitimate to begin with. And again, so there was no righteous Christian slavery in America in the Antebellum South. Of course, that's not to say that everybody was the worst. There were some Christians who were gentle and taught their slaves to read and shared the gospel with them, and we're thankful for them. Even though that was, uh, there was still sin involved, it was still wrong in some respects, at least uh, they weren't as awful as some other masters. Indeed, you know, they, like all of us, they had sin, they had faults, they had blind spots. And just as we're grateful that the Lord forgives our sins, our even cultural sins that it's hard for us to see, so also these people, if they believed and trusted in Christ and turned from their sin, even this sin was forgiven them. All right, I, I'd, I'd guess that it might still be in your head. You're still thinking, I'm still having a, a hard time imagining how someone could justly have come into slavery, how I could want myself or my child to enter into something like that. I still can only think of unfair and unjust scenarios. And indeed, that's what some people say. Some people, uh, Christian authors say, every type of slavery was wrong. One, one author put it this way, listen, I don't care if a slave is treated fairly. If someone came and stole my, my son from me and kept him as a slave for 10 years, I wouldn't care if he came and told to me, hey, I treated him fairly and justly. That wouldn't matter to me. But again, that's a straw man argument. The Bible is abundantly clear that anytime you kidnap or steal somebody, it's wrong. No one's saying that's a just form of slavery. I'll give you what I think would be a just and fair scenario. Imagine that uh, I was a fourth century farmer. And one day, the local chieftain came by my farm and he said, hey, I'm conscripting your son into the military. We're going to go fight those dirty people over there. And so he took my son as a soldier out to war, and they went uh, day, on a day's journey to go and fight some other tribe. And say in the midst of their battle, uh, my tribe with my son, they were defeated. And as the uh, you know, defeated soldiers were rounded up, the opposing tribe had the decision to execute the people or keep them as slaves. Imagine that my son was kept as a slave. He was brought to a slave owner, and that slave owner treated him justly, fairly, and graciously. Imagine that that master educated my son, taught him the scriptures, brought him to church, told him that he had equal dignity in God's eyes. That he told him that, uh, hey, you're my slave right now, but guess what? It doesn't have to remain this way forever. Here's your pathway to freedom. You do this over the next 10 years, and you will be uh, set free. I will set you on your way. You can go live your life. 
Imagine that case. I would be very grateful to that man. I would be grateful that he was that kind to my son. I would be so thankful that my son was not slaughtered in battle, but instead someone took him and, yeah, indeed, got labor, got service from him, but also respected him, gave him opportunities in life. I would be grateful to that man. That seems to me to be just and fair, and I think that's the exact type of slavery again that back in the ancient world the Bible condoned and regulated. On the other hand, what would it have meant to be a righteous Christian slave? Well, first of all, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.23 said that a Christian should avoid becoming a slave. Uh, Paul actually says you, you shouldn't become a slave because you'll lose your freedom. It would be better to have your freedom and be able to serve the Lord however you choose. But if you do become a slave, uh, for whatever reason, recognize that you are not a slave in God's eyes. Uh, you should be content with your place in life, yet also if you have the opportunity Accept your freedom, take the, oper- take the freedom. Uh, also, see every good thing that you do in your labor for your master as an opportunity to serve your true master, Jesus Christ. And then similarly, honor and obey your master, and if you do so, he will admire God's grace in your life. And then finally, what it would have meant to be a slave, uh, a righteous Christian slave, you would remember that God sees your suffering and will vindicate you on the last day. That's in First Peter 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks with Pastor John. I would now like to, uh, to make a note. Again, there's plenty of atheists who attack the Bible by saying that, oh, come on, that book is dumb, it's immoral, it promotes slavery. Uh, it is so ignorant and dumb when a non-Christian says that. The only reason that slavery is abolished in the world is because of Christians. That is the only reason until Christianity came around, there was slavery everywhere. And indeed, look in atheist uh, China. They've once again turned to slavery and slavering uh, the Uyghur people there. The only reason that we even know such a thing, that slavery is uh, a bad thing, an evil thing, and that we were able to abolish it, again, is because of the work of faithful Christians. And just because there were plenty of evil people who said they were Christians and promoted slavery that does not negate all of the righteous, uh, loving Christians who spent their lives trying to fight for the rights of enslaved peoples. Indeed, after Christianity comes on the scene in the first century, with every year that goes by, slavery became less and less prevalent in the Roman world until actually in uh, in the medieval times in Europe, Slavery was eventually eradicated, and it was turned into a a milder thing called serfdom. Slavery, of course, still existed in some places, but for the most part, Christianity over those first, you know, say, 1,200 years had largely eradicated slavery. Slavery had its awful, terrible revival that we know of in the 15th century, and that happened as uh, new lands were discovered, and it became obvious to evil, greedy men, that they needed cheap labor to work these new lands that were discovered. So they first just enslaved the people that they found there on that island. They would sometimes have white people become um, bond servants. And then eventually, very sadly, um, the Western world figured out that they could get African slaves very cheaply and that these African slaves worked very hard. And of course, it's very sad that that happened. And even when that happened, though, what the people who were now justifying having slaves again, they didn't go to the Bible. They went to Aristotle. They went to the classics. They avoided what the Bible said. It was only centuries later that uh, people made up terribly, uh, terrible exegesis about the mark of uh, Cain and all that stuff. And then, of course, the reason that slavery was once again eradicated was, again, because of the work of Christians, people like William Wilberforce working tirelessly to outlaw the slave trade. All right, that's what the Bible says about slavery in general. Hopefully, that equips you, should anyone ever tell you, you know the Bible has a moral teaching about slavery. Also, hopefully, it vindicates in your mind the perfection and the righteousness, the divinity of the things that are said here in Scripture. And let's then, with our last few minutes, turn specifically to verses 9 and 10. How do these commands to slaves apply to us today? And I think it applies to us in this way. Point number three is this. Doing good works while under authority. 
doing good works while under authority. The question here is, can a slave do good works? A slave doesn't have freedom. He doesn't decide how he's going to spend his energy throughout the day. And so he might be wondering throughout the book of Titus, hey, can I do good things too, even though I don't really have an option of what I'm going to do? Can I glorify God in my labor and my life? And yes, absolutely they can. And the way that they are going to do that is by showing faithfulness to their masters. That's how they are going to do good works. That's how they, it says here, will adorn the doctrine of God. They are going to be faithful by doing the following things. First of all, verse 9, they are going to be submissive to their masters. They are going to do what their masters say. Next, it says they are to be well-pleasing. That is, they're not just going to get the task done to get the task done. They're going to want to do the best they can to please their master. Third, they're not going to argue. They're not going to complain when they're told to do something. Fourth, they're not going to pilfer. They're not going to steal resources from their masters. And the final statement, I think, summarizes everything. They will show all good faith. They will show their master that they can be counted on, that they can be trusted. Indeed, and it's, it's a beautiful thing here. Who are the people in the book of Titus that get this wonderful phrase that they will adorn the doctrine of God? Who are the people that are going to make God's truth beautiful to the world? It's the lowly slaves. When they serve their masters faithfully, when they submit, they are showing their masters and their fellow slaves how beautiful their God is. It's a wonderful calling that even these lowly slaves have. This applies to us today for all of us who do not have freedom about how we spend our days, who go to work and we do monotonous, perhaps uh, menial, perhaps seemingly trivial tasks. If you spend your whole day inputting data, making sales calls, fixing pipes, answering emails, you might wonder, uh, how am I supposed to do good works? How am I supposed to do good works when I'm just wasting my time doing these simple tasks? Indeed, this might be especially relevant to some of you younger enlisted people here. Uh, really, any of you who might be younger in your careers. Uh, my whole life, it's, it's miserable. I don't do anything productive. I don't use my skills. I don't use my abilities. It's just the same drudgery every day. What am I doing? What's the purpose in my life? In the midst of all those tasks, if you are faithful to your boss, if you show yourself that you can be counted on, that he can trust you, you are doing something very significant. You are showing how beautiful is the teaching of Scripture, how beautiful is the teaching from God's mind. And again, how do you do that specifically? Let's look again at those words. You submit. When your boss, your, teach, your teacher, your commanding officer, your supervisor, when they ask you to do something, you do it. You do it. That's simple. Second, you aim to please. When they ask you to do something, it's not just simply, well, what's the bare minimum I have to do to appease them to have technically done the job? No, do more than that. Instead, when you get a task, think about, how can I please my boss, my supervisor, my teacher the most in my completion of this task? For many years, I, or years ago, I recognized that pretty much my whole life, I had been trying to figure out how I could do the least amount that I was expected with the least amount of energy. It's a terrible way to live life. When you get a task, figure out how you can do it the absolute best to please your boss, your supervisor, whoever. Third, don't argue. When your boss tells you to do something, don't complain. Don't tell them that that's a stupid way to do it, that you have a better idea. Just do it. Think of uh, Philippians 2. Don't grumble and complain. And when you don't do that, you will shine as a light in the world. Fourth, don't steal. Don't take advantage of your employer financially. Don't steal property. Don't steal time. Don't steal company expenses. Show your employer that they can trust you with their financial resources. If you do these things, no matter how low you are on the totem pole, you will adorn the doctrine of God. In conclusion, I'd like to turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, really, all throughout the New Testament, every command to slaves, they're, they're always very beautiful. Uh, they're always very convicting. And I want to look at, at one of those right now. Colossians chapter 3, we'll look from verse 22 
to chapter 4, verse 1. And indeed, you'll see this is absolutely something that applies to all of us, no matter where we are in life. Colossians 3.22 Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your, bond, your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. Indeed, Lord, that's what we experience every time we come to your word. We experience the definition of a true ethic, of true morality. It is divine. It, it transcends our mind. And we are grateful every time that we can see your perfect law. Please help us as we ever need to explain the truth of your scripture to a doubting or skeptical world. Please also, Lord, for all of us who have uh, employees, who are responsible for other people under us, have us be gracious, recognizing that their dignity is not less than us. And finally, Lord, for all of us who have bosses, who are told to go this way and that way, please Give us the grace and strength to honor you in the way that we please and honor our bosses, our supervisors. I pray that all of us through this week, we would adorn the doctrine of God by the way we complete our work. We can only do this through your spirit inside of us. Indeed, we are so grateful that we can do that. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen.